44. Application of her own handiwork. We can fancy the venerable old gossip at her business. Padding up skulls as serenely as our lamented great-grandmother she wrote a very pretty book on the beauties of population, and illustrated the work, too. With portraits from her own hand was wont to pat up apple dumplings, we can imagine nature good old soul, looking over her spectacles at the infant doe, and saying to herself as she finishes skull by skull, Ha! That will do for a pawnbroker, that, as it's rather low and narrow, for a sharp attorney, that for a parish constable, that for a clown at a fair, and so on. And we can well imagine the astonishment of simple heart dulled nature on getting a ticket for the gallery of the House of Commons for very seldom. Indeed, has she been known to show herself on the floor, to see her skull of a pawnbroker on the shoulders of a chancellor of the exchequer, her caput of the sharp attorney belonging to a minister of the home department, her head of a parish constable as a paymaster of the forces, and the dough she had intended to swallow. Knives and eat fire at wakes and fairs gravely responded to as an honorable and gallant member, whereupon, who can wonder at the amazement and indignation of Mother Nature, and that, with a keen sense of the misapplication of her skulls, she sometimes abuses Mother Fortune in good set terms, mingling with her reproaches the strongest reflections on her chastity, we had thought it due to the full consideration of our subject so far, to dwell upon the natural difference between the skull of a peer and the skull of a commoner. The skull of the noble, as we have shown, is a thing made to order fitted up, like Mr. M.E.C.H.I.'s pocket dressing case. With the ornament landfill, no instrument can be added to it the thing is complete. Hence, to employ historical painters for the education of the House of Lords would be a useless and profligate expenditure of art and money. It would be to paint the lily and dairy to add a perfume to the violet and B.O.R.O.U.G.H. All cares being from the first indeed. Even in utero ordained lawmakers, statute making comes to them by nature. How much history goes to prove this, showing that the House of Lords like the Solomons of the Fleur de Lis have learned nothing, and forgotten nothing. To attempt to instruct a peer would be as gross an impertinence to the instinct of his order as to present Minerva who no doubt came from the head of Jova Pyrrhus in her own right with a toy alphabet or hornbook. For the skulls of the House of Commons, that island indeed. Another question. We are so far utilitarian that we would have the pictures for which Mr. Barry offers a thousand feet selected solely with a view to the dissemination of knowledge amongst the many benighted members of the House of Commons. We would have the subjects so chosen that they should entirely supersede Oldfield's representative history, never forgetting the wants of the most illiterate. For instance, for the politicians on the fifth form, the SIBDHORPs and PLUNPDRs, whose education in their youth has been shamefully neglected, we would have a nice pictorial political alphabet. We do not pride ourselves, be it understood. Upon writing and wrinkled verse, we only present the subjoined as a crude idea of our plan, taken we confess, from certain variegated volumes, to be had either of Mr. S. Oudier, St. Paul's Churchyard, or Masros, D.A.R.D.O.N. and Harvey, Holborn, a was King Alfred, a monarch of note, B.S.B.U.R.D.A.D.E., who can well turn a coat. Here we would have the chief incidents of Alfred's life nicely painted, with B.U.R.D.A.D.E., late old glory, and now old corruption. As for the poetry, when we consider the capacities of the learners, that cannot be too simple, too homely, the house, however, may order a committee of versification, if it please, all that we protest against is Disraeli being of the number, see is the corn laws, that famish the poor, D is the debt, that will famish them more, here for the imaginative artist, 
is an opportunity to paint the wholesale wickedness and small villainies of the corn laws. What a contrast of scene and character, squalid hovels, and princely residences purse proud, plethoric injustice, big and bloated with its iniquitous gains, and gaunt, famine-stricken multitudes. Then for the debt that hideous thing begotten by war and corruption, what a tremendous moral lesson might be learned from a nightly coming of the terrific theme. We had neither poetic genius nor space of paper to go through the whole of the alphabet, we merely throw out the above four lines and were we not assured that they are better lines, far more musical, than any to be found in B.U.L.W. or Siamese twins, we should blush much nearer scarlet than we do to give an idea of the utility and beautiful comprehensiveness of our plan. The great difficulty, however, will be to compress the subjects so multitudinous are they within the thousand feet allowed by the architect, to begin with the wooden agimote, or meeting of the wise men, and to end with portraits of Mr. Roebuck's ancestors to say nothing of the fine imaginative sketch of the member for bath tilting, in the mode of Quixote and with the steam press of printing house square will require the most extraordinary powers of condensation on the parts of the artists, nevertheless, if the undertaking be even creditably executed, it will be a monument of national wisdom and national utility to unborn generations of members, what crowds of subjects press upon us, the history of bribery might make a sort of parliamentary rake's progress, if we could but hit upon the artist to portray its manifold beauties, the Windsor stables and the education of the poor would form admirable companion pictures, in which the superiority of the horse over the human animal could be most satisfactorily delineated the quadruped having considerably more than three times the amount voted to him for snug lodging, hay, beans, and oats that the English pauper obtained from Parliament for that manure of the soil as congregated piety at Exeter Hall denominates it a Christian education. What a beautiful arabesque border might be conceived from a perusal of the late Lord Castlereagh's speeches. We should here have parliamentary eloquence under a most fantastic yet captivating phase. Who, for instance, but the artist to punch could paint C.A.S.D.L.E.R.E.A.G.H.'s figure of a smug, contented, selfish traitor, the crocodile with his hand in his breeches pocket, again, does not the reader recollect that extraordinary person who, according to the North Cray Demosthenes, turned his back upon himself, there would be a portrait, one, two, presenting food for the most sweet and bitter melancholy, to the Grahams and the Stanleys, there is also that immortal parliamentary metaphor, emanating from the same mysterious source, the feature upon which the question hinges, the only man who could have properly painted this was the enthusiastic Blake, who so successfully limbed the ghost of a flea. These matters, however, are to be considered as merely supplementary ornaments to great themes. The grand subjects are to be sought for in Hansard's reports, in petitions against returns of members, in the evidence that comes out in the committee rooms, in the abstract principles of right and wrong, that make members honest patriots or that make them give the harlot, I, and, Mumber, as dictated by the foul spirit gibbering in their breeches pockets, that we may have painted all these things, Mr. Barry offers up one thousand feet, oh, Mr. B can't you make it ten, Q punches pencilings, Mumber XV, the physiology of the London medical student, for, of the manner in which the first season passes, from the period of our last chapter our friend commences to adopt the attributes of the mature student, his notes are taken as before at each lecture he attends, but the lectures are fewer, and the notes are never fairly transcribed, at the same time they are interspersed with a larger proportion of portraits of the lecturer, and other humorous conceits, 
he proposes at lunchtime every day that he and his companions should go the odd man for a pot, and the determination he had formed at his entry to the school, of working the last session for all the prizes, and going up to the hall on the Thursday and the college on the Friday without grinding, appears somewhat difficult of being carried into execution. It is at this point of his studies that the student commences a steady course of imaginary dissection, that is to say, he keeps a chimerical account of extremities whose minute structure he has deeply investigated in his head, and received in return various sums of money from home for the avowed purpose of paying for them. If he really has put his name down for any heads and necks or pelvic viscera at the commencement of the season, when he had imbibed and cherished some lunatic idea that dissection was the sheet anchor of safety at the college, he becomes a trafficker in human flesh, and disposes of them as quickly as he can to any hard-working man who has his examination in perspective. He now assumes a more independent air, and even ventures to chalk on figures on the blackboard in the theater. He has been known, previously to the lecture, to let down the skeleton that hangs by a balance weight from the ceiling, and, inserting its thumb in the cavity of its nose, has there secured it with a piece of thread, and then, placing a short pipe in its jaws, has pulled it up again. His inventive faculties are likewise shown by various diverting objects and illusions cut with his knife upon the ledge before him in the lecture room, whereon the new men rest their notebooks and the old ones go to sleep. In vain do the directors of the school order the ledge to be coated with paint and sand mixed together nothing is proof against his knife, were it adamant he would cut his name upon it. His favorite position at lecture is now the extremity of the bench where its horseshoe form places him rather out of the range of the lecturer's vision, and, ten to one, it is here that he has cut a cribbage board on the seat, that which he and his neighbor play during the lecture on surgery, concealing their game from common eyes by spreading a Macintosh cape on the desk before them. His conversation also gradually changes its tone, and instead of mildly inquiring of the porter, on his entering the school of a morning, what is for the day's anatomical demonstration, he talks of the regular lark he had last night at the Eagle, and how jolly screwed he got. A frank admission, which bespeaks the candor of his disposition. Careful statistics show us that it is about the end of November the new man first makes the acquaintance of his uncle, and observant people have remarked, as worthy of insertion in the medical almanac amongst the usual phenomena of the calendar, about this time dissecting cases and tooth instruments appear in the windows, and we may look for watches towards the beginning of December. Although this is his first transaction on his own account, yet his property has before ascended the spot, when some unprincipled student, at the beginning of the season, picked his pocket of a big silver lancet case, which he had brought up with him from the country, and having, pledged it at the nearest money lenders, sent him a duplicate in a polite note, and spent the money with some other dishonest young men, in drinking their victim's health in his absence, and, by the way, it is a general rule that most new men delight to carry big lancet cases, although they had about as much use for them as a lecturer upon practice of physic has for top boots. Thus gradually approaching step by step towards the perfection of his state, the new man's first winter session passes, and it is not unlikely that, at the close of the course, he may enter to compete for the anatomical prize, which he sometimes gets by stealth, cribbing his answers from a tiny manual of knowledge two inches by one and a half in size, which he hides under his blotting paper, this triumph achieved, he devotes the short period which intervenes before the commencement of the summer botanical course to various hilarious pastimes, and as the watch and dissecting case are both gone, 
he writes the following dispatch to his governor letter number ii copy my dear father you will i am sure be delighted to learn that i have gained the 29th honorary certificate for proficiency in anatomy which you will allow is a very high number when i tell you that only 30 are given I had also the satisfaction of informing you that the various professors have given me certificates of having attended their lectures very diligently during the past courses. I work very hard, but I need not inform you that, with all my economy, I am at some expense for good books and instruments. I have purchased list on surgery, Anthony Thompson's Materia Medica, Burns and Merriman's Midwifery, Graham's Chemistry, Astley Cooper's Dislocations, and Quain's Anatomy all of which I have read carefully through twice. I also pay a private demonstrator to go over the bones with me of a night, and I had bought a skeleton at Alexander's a great bargain. This, when I pass, I think of presenting to the museum of the hospital, as I am under great obligations to the surgeons. I think a ten-pound note will clear my expenses, although I wish to enter to a summer course of dissections, and take some lessons in practical chemistry in the laboratories with Professor Carbon but these I will endeavor to pay for out of my own pocket, with my best regards to all at home. Believe me, your affectionate son, Joseph Muff. As soon as the summer course begins, the botanical lectures commence with it, and the polite company of apothecaries courteously request the students' acceptance of a ticket of admission to the lectures, at their garden at Chelsea, as these commence somewhere about eight in the morning. Of course he must get up in the middle of the night to be there, and consequently he attends very often of course, but the botanical excursions that take place every Saturday from his own school are his especial delight. He buys a candle box to contain all the chickweed, chamomiles, and dandelions he may collect, and slinging it over his shoulder with his pocket handkerchief, he starts off in company with the professor and his fellow herbalists to a Wandsworth Common, Battersea Fields, Hampstead Heath, or any other favorite spot which the Cockney Flora embellishes with her offspring. The conduct of medical students on botanical excursions generally appears in various phases. Some real lovers of the study, pale men in spectacles, who wear shoes and can walk forever, collect every weed they drop upon, to which they assign a most extraordinary name, and display it at their lodgings upon cartridge paper, with penny pieces to keep the leaves in their places as they dry. Others limit their collections to stinging nettles, which they slyly insert into their companions' pockets or long bulrushes, which they tuck under the collars of their coats, and the remainder turn into the first house of public entertainment they arrive at on emerging from the smoke of London to the rural districts, and remain all day absorbed in the mysteries of ground billiards and knock and bounds, their principal vegetable studies being confined to lettuces, spring onions, and watercresses, but all this is very proper we mean the botanical part of the story for the knowledge of the natural class and order of a buttercup must be of the greatest service to a practitioner in after life in treating a case of typhus fever or ruptured blood vessel, at some of the continental hospitals, the pupil's time is wasted at the bedside of the patient, from which he can only get practical information, how much better is the primrose investigating curriculum of study observed at our own medical schools, some things to which the Irish would not swear, Mr. Grove, this insufferably ignorant, and, therefore, insolent magisterial cur, who has recently made himself an object of an enviable notoriety, by asserting that, the Irish would swear anything, has shown himself to be as stupid as he is malignant, would, for instance, 
the most hard-mouthed Irishman in existence venture to swear that Mr. Grove is a gentleman, or that Sir Francis Burdett has brought honor to his gray hairs, or that Colonel Sithorpe has more brains than beard, or that Sir Robert Peel feels for anybody but himself, or that Peter Borthwick was listened to with attention, or that Sir Peter Laurie's wisdom cannot be estimated, or that Sir Edward George Erlin Bullewer thinks very small beer of himself, or that the Earl of Coventry carries a vast deal of sense under his hat, or that Mr. Roebuck is the head of the times, or, in short, that the Tories are the best and most popular governors that England ever had. If the Irish would swear to the above, we confess they would swear anything. Coming events cast their shadows before them. Sir James Clark is in daily attendance at the palace. We suppose that he is looking out for a new birth under government. Hostilities in private life. We have just heard of an event which has shaken the peace of a highly respectable house in Street Martin's Court. From the chimney pots to the coal cellar. Mrs. Brown, the occupier of the first floor, happened, on last Sunday, to borrow of Mrs. Smith, who lived a pair higher in the world, a German silver teapot, on the occasion of her giving a small twanky party to a few select friends. But though she availed herself of Mrs. Smith's German silver, to add respectability to her soiree, she wholly overlooked Mrs. Smith, who was not invited to partake of the festivities. This was a slight that no woman of spirit could endure, and though Mrs. Smith's teapot was German silver, she resolved to let Mrs. Brown see that she had herself some real Britannia metal in her composition. Accordingly when the teapot was sent up the following morning to Mrs. Smith's apartments, with Mrs. Brown's compliments and thanks, Mrs. Smith discovered or affected to discover, a serious contusion on the lid of the article, and dispatched it by her own servant back to Mrs. Brown, accompanied by the subjoined note, Mrs. Smith's compliments to Mrs. Brown, begs to return the teapot to the latter in consequence of the ill usage it has received in her hands, Mrs. Brown, being a woman who piques herself upon her talent at epistolary writing, immediately replied in the following terms, Mrs. Brown's compliments to Mrs. Smith begs to say that her paltry teapot received no ill usage from Mrs. Brown. Mrs. B. will thank Mrs. S. not to put to S. at the end of teapot in future. This note and the teapot were forthwith sent upstairs to Mrs. Smith, whose indignation being very naturally roused, she again returned the battered affair, with a spirited missive. Mrs. Smith begs to inform Mrs. Brown, that she despises her insinuations, and to say, that she will put as many S. as she pleases in her teapot. P.S. Mrs. S. expects to be paid tens, for the injured article. Again the teapot was sent upstairs, with the following reply from Mrs. Brown, Mrs. Brown thinks Mrs. Smith a low creature. P.S. Mrs. B. won't pay a farthing. The correspondence terminated here, the German silver teapot remaining in statu quo on the lobby window, between the territories of the hostile powers, and there it might have remained until the present moment, if Mrs. Brown had not declared, in an audible voice at the foot of the stairs, that Mrs. Smith was acting under the influence of gin, which reaching the ears of the calumniated lady, she rushed down to the landing place, and seizing the teapot, discharged it at Mrs. Brown's head, which it fortunately missed, but totally annihilated a plaster figure of Napoleon, which stood in the hall, and materially damaged its own spot, Mrs. Brown, being wholly unsupported at the time, retired hastily within the defenses of her own apartments which Mrs. Smith cannonade vigorously for upwards of ten minutes with a broom handle, and there is every reason to believe she would shortly have effected a practicable breach, if a reinforcement from the kitchen had not arrived to aid the besieged, 
and forced the assailant back to her second-floor entrenchments. Mrs. Smith then demanded a truce until evening, which was granted by Mrs. Brown, notwithstanding which the former lady was detected, in defiance of this arrangement, endeavoring to blow up Mrs. Brown through the keyhole. There is no telling how this unhappy difference will terminate, for though at present matters appear tolerably quiet, we know not as in the case of the Canadas at what moment we may have to inform our readers that geology of society. Section II. We last week described the different strata of society comprehended in the inferior series, and the lower portion of the Clapham group. We now beg to call the attention of our readers to a most important division in the next great formation which has been termed the transition class because the individuals composing it are in a gradual state of elevation, and have a tendency to mix with the superior strata. By referring to the scale which we gave in our first section, it will be seen that the lowest layer in this class is formed by the people who keep shops and one horse, chaise, and go to a ramsgate for three weeks in the dog days. They all exhibit evidences of having been thrown up from a low to a high level. The elevating causes are numerous, but the most remarkable are those which arise from the action of unexpected legacies. Lotteries were formerly the cause of remarkable elevations, and speculation in the funds may be still considered as amongst the elevating causes, though their effect is frequently to cause a sudden sinking. Lying immediately above the shop and shade people, we find the old substantial merchant, who every day precisely as the clock strikes ten is in the act of hanging up his hat in his little back counting house in Fenchurch Street, his private house, however, is at Brixton Hill where the gentility of the family is supported by his wife, two daughters, a piano, and a servant in livery. The best and finest specimens of the strata are susceptible of a slight polish, they are found very full in the construction of joint stock banks, railroads, and other speculations where a good foundation is required. We now come to the Russell Square group, which comprehends all those people who live private, and aim at being thought fashionable and independent. Many individuals of this group are nevertheless supposed by many to be privately connected with some trading concern in the city. It is a distinguishing characteristic of the second layer in this group to have a tendency to give dinners to the superior series, while the specimens of the upper stratum are always found in close proximity to a carriage. Family descent, which is a marked peculiarity of the superior class, is rarely to be met with in the Russell Square group. The fossil animals which exist in this group are not numerous, they are for the most part decayed barristers and superannuated doctors. Of the Street James's series it is sufficient to say that it consists of four strata, of which the superior specimens are usually found attached to coronets. Most of the precious stones, as diamonds, rubies, emeralds, are also to be found in this layer. The materials of which it is composed are various, and appear originally to have belonged to the inferior classes and the only use to which it can be applied is in the construction of piers. Throughout all the classes there occur what are called veins, containing diverse substances. The larking vein is extremely abundant in the superior classes it is rich in brass knockers, bell handles, and policemen's rattles. This vein descends through all the lower strata, the specimens in each differing according to the situation in which they are found, the middle classes being generally discovered deposited in the coal hole tavern or the cider cellars while the individuals of the very inferior order are usually discovered in gin shops and low-pot houses, and not infrequently the WAPP deluge. Father Thames, not content with his customary course, has been swelling it in the course of the week, through some of the streets of the metropolis, as if to inculcate temperance. He walked himself down into public house cellars, 
filling all the empty casks with water, and adulterating all the beer and spirits that came in his way, turning also every body's fixed into floating capital, half-empty butts, whose place was below, came sailing up into the bar through the ceiling of the cellar, saucepans were elevated from beneath the dresser to the dresser itself, while cups were made to pop off the hooks with surprising rapidity, but the greatest consternation that prevailed was among the rats, particularly those in the neighborhood of Downing Street, who were driven out of the sewers they inhabit with astounding violence. The dairies on the banks of the Thames were obliged to lay aside their customary practice of inundating the milk, for such a meeting of the waters as would otherwise have ensued must have proved rather too much, even for the regular customers. Savory con, by Cox. Why is it impossible for a watch that indicates the smaller divisions of time ever to be new? Because it must always be a second-hand one. Punch's information for the people. Member V. Natural History continued. The opera dancer H.K. Pernicus C.R.I.D.O.E. So decidedly does this animal belong to the Biomana order of beings, that to his two legs he is indebted for existence. Most of his fellow bipeds live by the work of their hands, except indeed the feathered and tailor tribes, who live by their bills but from his thighs, calves, ankles, and toes, does the opera dancer derive subsistence for the less important portions of his anatomy, physiology, the body, face, and arms of the opera dancer present no peculiarities above the rest of his species, and it is to his lower extremities alone that we must look for distinguishing features, as our researches extend downwards from head to foot, the first thing that strikes us is a protuberance of the antioccipital membranes, so great as to present a back view that describes two sides of a scaling triangle, the apex of which projects posteriorly nearly halfway down the figure, that a due equilibrium may be preserved in this difficult position technically called, the first, the toes are turned out so as to form a right angle with the lower leg, thus, in walking, this curious being presents a mass of animated straight lines that have an equal variety of inclination to a bundle of rods carelessly tied up, or to Signor Paganini when afflicted with the lumbago, habits, the habits of the opera dancer vary according as we see him in public or in private life, on the stage he is all spangles and activity, off the stage, seediness and decrepitude are his chief characteristics, it is usual for him to enter upon his public career with a tremendous bound and a head and feathers, after standing upon one toe, he raises its fellow up to a line with his nose, and turns round until the applause comes, even if that be delayed for several minutes, he then cuts six, and shuffles up to a female of his species, who being his sweetheart in the ballet, has been looking savage envy at him and spiteful indignation at the audience on account of the applause, which ought to have been reserved for her own capering to come, when it does, she throws up her arms and steps upon tiptoe about three paces, looking exactly like a crane with a sore heel, making her legs into a pair of compasses, she describes a circle in the air with one great toe upon a pivot formed with the other, then bending down so that her very short petticoat makes a cheese upon the ground, spreads out both arms to the ruets in the stalls, who understand the signal, and cry, Bravo, Bravo, rising, she turns her back to display her gauze jupe elastic, which is always exceedingly dufanty, expectorating upon the stage as she retires, she thus makes way for her lover, who, being her professional rival, she invariably detests, it is singular that in private life the habits of the animal differ most materially according to its sex, the male sometimes keeps an academy and a cat fable, but the domestic relations of the female remain a profound mystery, and although Professors Tom Duncombe, 
Count Dorsey, Chesterfield, and several other eminent Italian operatic natural historians, have spent immense fortunes in an ardent pursuit of knowledge in this branch of science. They have as yet afforded the world but a small modicum of information. Perhaps what they have learned is not of a nature to be made public. Moral characteristics. None. Reproduction. The offspring of opera dancers are not, as is sometimes supposed, born with wings. The truth is that these cherubim are frequently attached by their backs to copper wires, and made to represent flying angels in fairy dramas, and those appendages, so far from being natural, are supplied by the property man, together with the wreaths of artificial flowers which each Lilliputian divinity upholds. Sustenance. All opera dancers are decidedly omnivorous. Their appetite is immense, quantity and for most of them come from France. Not quality, is what they chiefly desire. When not dining at their own expense, they eat all they can, and pocket the rest. Indeed, a celebrated sylphide unsurpassed for the graceful airiness of her evolutions has been known to make the sunflower in the last scene bend with the additional weight of a roast pig, an apple pie, and sixteen omelette soufflés drink, including porter, in proportion. Various philosophers have endeavored to account for this extraordinary digestive capacity, but some of their arguments are unworthy of the science they otherwise adorn. For example, it has been said that the great exertions to which the dancer is subject demand a corresponding amount of nutriment, and that the copious transudation superinduct thereby requires proportionate supplies of suction, while, in point of fact, if such theorists had studied their subject a little closer, they would have found these unbounded appetites accounted for upon the most simple and conclusive ground, it is clear tea.